So glad to be here with you this morning. You know, as I was driving to church this morning, I was just in awe at all the colors and the beauty of fall here. For those of you that don't know, I'm from Central California. So uh, anything that's like not brown is amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm just so happy to be here, to be enjoying Maryland with you all, and especially to be able to worship together this morning. I've been blessed to be here at Spencerville for the last three weeks, so I haven't met many of you yet, but it's been such a blessing being able to go to the community, uh, knocking on some doors around here, giving Bible studies to a few people, some of them were here today, and uh, just really being able to minister in this area, and I'm so thankful that we can work for God. Well, why don't we have one more word of prayer before we begin. Father in heaven, this morning we are just so grateful that we can come and worship you in a place of freedom. We don't have to worry about being persecuted. We don't have to worry about any of that, Lord, that people had to face in the past. We thank you that we can come together here in freedom. And we just pray that as your word is open, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts in your name, amen. So I was born in Berrien Springs, Michigan a place that probably most of you are not familiar with. Uh, my dad was in seminary, and I was blessed to grow up in a Christian Seventh-day Adventist home. Some of you have heard me share some of these things, but I, uh, my, my, my home is very Christian. My dad would compose Christ, uh, scripture songs for us so that when we went to Sabbath school, we could sing the scriptures instead of just recite them. We were a pastor's family, so we went to all of the church activities. Sometimes I would go with my dad to all three churches. While we were kids, I love sharing this story, we, were, we would be at the community pool, and you know, tons of kids there, and people would be sliding down the slides, and kids would be jumping, doing cannonballs into the water. And my sisters and I were there in the middle of the pool. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We were baptizing each other, just like we had seen my dad do. On road trips to Chicago, um, my parents said that they would look back and my sister and I would be handing each other chips and juice and saying, take, eat, this is my body. And we would be performing communion in the back seat. We were just doing what we saw our dad do. We were definitely a, a Seventh-day Adventist family and there are many other things that I could tell you that could illustrate. But you know, there comes a point when you really have to experience God for yourself, or else religion can become a form. For some, it slowly becomes irrelevant to their lives, and soon some find that the religion of their parents is just not theirs at all. You know, without a personal encounter with God, we're not guaranteed lifelong commitment to him. And for me, that experience began when I was 15. Because of a variety of events that happened in my life, I found myself alone and in desperate need of comfort, of someone who could really understand what I was going through. You've been there before, where you just feel like no one can really connect with your experience. And I remember little by little during that time, the Holy Spirit convicting me to spend time in the Word of God. 
And as I did, the Holy Spirit unfolded to me a person that I had never really truly experienced for myself before, a best friend, someone who loved me and who knew me and who understood me. And I remember sitting out on the bluff at Monterey Bay Academy where my family lived and just looking out over the ocean and just needing comfort. And as I sat there, I sensed Jesus whispering to me, I'm here, it'll be okay. As I continued on in those weeks and months, I couldn't wait to open my Bible because I needed him. And I would read the promises that he would never leave me or forsake me. The following year, just before I turned 16, I was invited to go on a Share Him mission trip to Ethiopia, where I preached a three-week series on the major teachings of the Bible. And I had never preached before, so I had no idea what I was doing. But the sermons were outlined for me, so all I had to do was study them in the morning and then preach them in the evening. And I remember thinking, wow, I've never really understood these things like I, like I am now. There's something about having a personal experience with the Bible. And I remember making my first appeal. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I told the people, if you desire to make the Bible your only rule of authority, I want you to raise your Bibles in the air. And I remember people were raising their Bibles and I was thinking inside, wow, they're actually doing it. I have no idea what I'm doing. I remember calling for baptism for the first time and seeing people actually respond and coming forward. And during those times, my focus started to shift from me and all the variety of things that 15 and 16-year-olds are focused on to really starting to enjoy ministry. A few months after I returned from that mission trip, I, it was summer break and I was invited to go to Youth Rush, which is a canvassing literature evangelism program in Central California. And we would carry Christian literature, health literature, books, cookbooks, and we'd go door to door for six to seven hours a day, leaving books for donations, signing people up for Bible studies, cooking schools, vacation Bible schools, seminars, praying with people, and having incredible experiences for 10 weeks. And I could tell you so many experiences. During that time, the leaders would give worships to, to us that would just break our hearts for Jesus. And as I went door to door searching for people who were open to the books, within me began to develop an actual love for sharing the gospel. You see, as I knocked on doors, you experience rejections. For any of you that have canvassed out there, you experience a lot of rejections. And you have to remind yourself of what Jesus has gone through for you. And you start to recognize how much he values humanity that even though he's rejected, he just keeps going because there might just be one more out there. The rejections were hard at first, but then when I started finding those people who would stand there and look at me with tears in their eyes saying, I was just praying that God would show me if he was real or if that he cares about me and then you show up at my door. There's nothing that compares. A thousand rejections were worth that one person all day. The value of sharing salvation with others began to be more important than anything else I could experience, even more important than any of the fears of sharing my faith. And this is what I'm getting at, that during those first several months of choosing to walk with God when I was a teenager, throughout these years of working for him, I've realized that nothing is so important in the Christian's life than to grasp and truly understand the value of salvation. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13 in your Bibles, if you have them this morning. Matthew 13 and verse 45 
verses 45 and 46. It's one of the shortest parables that Jesus told, one sentence long, but big with meaning. In verse 45 and 46, it says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found several pearls of great price, is that what it says? No. How many? One. When he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold everything except a few things that were special to him, and therefore he didn't have enough money to buy the pearl, so he had to finance it. No, it didn't say that, right? It says he sold everything that he had, and he bought it for one pearl of great price. Nothing else he had collected or bought up until this point as a merchant could compare in worth to this one great pearl. Why was the kingdom of heaven compared to this? Because Jesus, the king of the universe, whom angels adored and gave homage to, chose to strip himself of every supernatural power, humble himself, to become a human being degraded by 4,000 years of sin, subject himself to the temptations and weaknesses that we experience, walk the dusty roads of Galilee, touch lepers, heal issues of blood, be killed on a cruel cross, and experience the second death, and even when he rose again would forever bear the marks of his sacrifice on his hands and his feet as a constant reminder that yes, he was the merchant who sold all, who gave up everything, holding nothing back because of the value he placed on the wretched world called Earth that he saw as a beautiful pearl. You can imagine as Jesus is sharing this parable, short, brief, interesting to the readers or to the hearers, perhaps he is solemn as he thinks about all that he has given up and all that he will give up at the cross but my hunch is that Jesus, because of the joy set before him of seeing sinners saved for eternity, could share this parable with confidence and joy, knowing that he was willingly sacrificing all that it was divinely possible for God to sacrifice for the human race. We're told that when the plan of redemption was being formulated, that God the Son went into the presence of the Father three times, it was difficult to formulate this plan of salvation, not because God didn't love us, but because of all that it cost. He was forever going to take on the form of humanity and to take the risk of walking planet Earth to live a sinless life and die a horrible death. When Jesus first revealed the plan to the angels, we're told that the angels could not rejoice. They loved their Jesus. And get this, the angels started kneeling down in front of Jesus, saying, I will go, I will die for the sinful race. And yet the life of an angel could not pay the penalty, only the life of God. When we contemplate what was sacrificed for our salvation, and when we recognize the eternal alteration that heaven has undergone so that humanity can have even just a chance to be saved, we begin to understand the value of a soul. In a book called Great Controversy, page 21, the author says, the loss of even one soul is a calamity infinitely outweighing the gains and treasures of a world. Wow. 
The loss of even one person is a calamity to God. What is a calamity? It's a disaster. And we've seen plenty of disasters in the past, past several months, and it's absolutely devastating, almost unbearable to see what people have to go through, the loss they experience of possessions and family members, friends. To God, losing one soul is an absolute disaster. And we all know to an extent how that feels because many of us have had people in our lives that have passed away. If you've had someone near to you that has gone, you know that that pain of separation is, is so hard. But God, the creator of each and every one of us, feels it especially when he knows that one of his children is lost forever. The merchant, Jesus, sold all that he had to buy this precious, valuable pearl. Do you know how much worth you have to Jesus this morning? Do you understand how much your life cost the Son of God? I've had to recognize that in the moments when the devil is trying to tempt me to believe that my life is worthless, that I'm friendless, that I'm a failure, that I have no purpose in life, whatever it is, that he's just trying to divert me from the fact that the Son of God was willing to eternally cease from existing so I could be here so that I could have a chance at eternal life. You know, growing up, I, I had this idea that Jesus always knew that he was going to resurrect from the dead. That somehow, you know, it wasn't that bad because, you know, it would be horrible to die, but if you knew you were gonna resurrect in three days, then hey, it shouldn't be that bad. But you know, the promise that he would rise again came from his father. And as the father was withdrawing his presence from Jesus, Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that moment, he really thought that he would not rise up again. And in that moment, he could have said, this is too much. It's not worth it. And yet, knowing and feeling that he would not rise again, he still went through. Instead, he considered my salvation and your salvation more important than his existence. And my brothers and sisters, if we're not grasping this morning a little bit of how much heaven values salvation, how much heaven values human beings being reconciled to God and being in heaven one day, I'm not sure what else can illustrate to us this morning than this, that Jesus was willing to be gone forever so that we could be in heaven. I can serve a God like that, can't you? I can give my life to a God like that and this is what I started realizing as I was a teenager, as I would read the Bible and as I would work for souls, I recognized the value that every person has is, is so huge. It's what the devil fears most, this understanding of salvation, this value that we place on eternity. He fears it. He tries to dumb it down so that we don't think it's really that big of a deal. Sometimes he numbs us to the message so that Every time someone talks about the cross, we've heard it so many times, and I know what the pastor is getting at, Jesus died for my sins and he loves me. We've heard it so many times. But he'll do anything he can. The devil will do anything he can to obscure our vision from clearly seeing that all of heaven, since the very beginning, is obsessed about soul winning. And this, this is the foundation for a desire to reach other people. Any other foundation is really not gonna be motivational enough to tell people about the gospel, except this understanding, this experience where we value what has been done 
for us. I want you to turn to John chapter 4. One of my favorite passages here, Jesus has just finished speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And he has just given this woman everlasting life. And just like he said, it's welling up in her as a fountain that she just is just bubbling over and she goes back to share with the whole town. And in verse 32, the disciples had gone to get Jesus' food because he was hungry. And in 32, Jesus said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? I mean, maybe he's already eaten. But Jesus was talking about something different. In verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Nothing else mattered more to Jesus than being able to give everlasting life to people. In Desire of Ages, page 480, it says, the soul that has given himself to Christ is more precious in his sight than the whole world. The Savior would have passed through the agony of Calvary that one might be saved in his kingdom. He will never abandon one for whom he has died. Unless his followers choose to leave him, he will hold them fast. One soul he would have died for, and just one. You know, this morning, every single person matters to God. Whether their background is rich or poor, whether their skin is light or dark, whether they have lots of letters after their name or a third grade education, whether they have spent years walking with God, obeying him in every way, or whether they have wasted their lives away in reckless living, drugs, alcohol, impurity, whatever it is, whether they're attractive or not, whether they smell good, have a home, have a job or not, whether they're the president of the United States or a grade school teacher in a tiny church school, the stay-at-home mom, the career-driven woman, the homeless man on the street, that annoying person that posts on Facebook all their opinions that you just don't agree with, the coworker with a filthy mouth, the wayward child, the man caught in an affair, the chef, the janitor, the doctor, the Muslim, the priest, the atheist, the Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, the person you dislike the most in the world or the person that you would give your life for, Jesus loves them that much too and every single soul matters to God. Every person you have ever laid your eyes on and ever will in your life, Jesus died for them and it is a calamity to God to see even one of them lost forever. When people finally grasp the price paid for every single person, when they realize that their lives are worth the life of the Son of God, all of a sudden, nothing else matters more than telling other people that they are of value too. Nothing else matters more than spreading the gospel. And this is, this is exactly what drove the life of Jesus. It drove the life of the early Christian church, of the reformers that we've been talking about so much, the Adventist pioneers that started this church. This understanding is what drove their lives to spread the gospel, to reach people for Jesus. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 120, it's talking about Acts chapter 2 in the early church when the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And listen to this. The church beheld converts flocking to her from all directions. Believers were reconverted. 
Sinners united with Christ in seeking the pearl of great price. One interest prevailed. One object swallowed up all others. All hearts beat in harmony. The only ambition. We have a lot of ambitions in our world, don't we? But the only ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labor for the enlargement of his kingdom. For they had found the pearl of great price. Not only does the pearl represent humanity that Christ so values, but it also represents Jesus, that when we recognize the value he places on us, we surrender all that we have and are to this precious pearl. And this is exactly what those great men and women of old did in the early Christian church during the Reformation. And we hear Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, you can look it up later, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Surely in Paul's life, we see a life of self-sacrifice, a life of total surrender, a man whose heart was burdened for the lost. He was once a persecutor, but gladly became the persecuted, even being stoned with rocks in one city, only to rise up again and go to the next, tirelessly traveling from city to city, building up the kingdom of God. He understood the value of souls being saved for eternity. Fast forward to what is called the Dark Ages, a time of great spiritual darkness, and we've been thinking about that a lot this month. Bibles could only be read in the language of the educated in Latin, and great oppression came as a result of the power of the church at Rome. God raised up men such as Wycliffe, who encountered the scriptures at Oxford University and so committed his life to God and spreading the truth of salvation that he was forced out of Oxford for his writings and teachings. Afterwards, he translated the Bible from Latin to English. He trained a group of people called the Lollards to distribute thousands upon thousands of Bibles in the common language and his own teachings, the light of which would never be put out for hundreds of years to come. This man, Wycliffe, so waited that people know the truth about salvation by grace through faith. Later on, earlier, early reformers, Huss and Jerome, encountered the works of Wycliffe, and they recognized this salvation so freely offered by Jesus, and they too devoted their whole lives to this teaching until they were imprisoned, tortured, and burned at the stake. It is said that as Huss stood there, about to be burned, that he said, Lord Jesus, I implore thee, forgive all my enemies for thy great mercy's sake. Pages from the Bible were torn out and used as kindling to start the fire. And Huss could be heard singing, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He could be heard reciting psalms until the flames silenced his voice. One year later, Jerome, too, was burned at the stake, standing unflinchingly for the cause of Christ, giving his life for the sake of that precious treasure that he had found. His last words, this soul in flames I offer. These men, having found the pearl of great price, sold all that they had and gave their lives in service to the master. They didn't count their lives dear to themselves if they could but advance the cause of their redeemer and win souls to heaven. The Waldensians, 
people who had the light of the word of God for many years during the dark ages, hiding in the upper valley and in the Alps, sharing salvation to those in the towns and villages at the expense of their lives, they would sew the word of God into their garments so that they could share it with anyone that was open to hearing the message. During the massacres of these people by the church, their Bibles were burned, their farmland destroyed, and the survivors were forced to the Alps. At one point, more than a thousand Waldensians were marched to the top of a mountain and cast to their death because of their unflinching faith in Jesus. Tens of thousands of these faithful people, from little children, even young ones, would give their lives for Jesus. All the way to the old men gave up their earthly lives for a book that is abundant in our country and yet sits gathering dust on our shelves. These men and women valued the cross and salvation and the spreading of the gospel more than their own lives. You know, we can sit here today, hundreds of us, with windows wide open, not a worry, because of those tens of thousands of people who spilled their blood. We can worship God without fear. We can read our Bibles in our own language. We have freedom of speech because of those people who gave their lives. And the very best way that we can honor the men and women who so gave such a great sacrifice during the time of the Reformation is by treasuring the scriptures and the salvation that God so freely provides and by sharing the message with someone else just as they would have done. This morning, I am challenged. I'm challenged when I reflect on the lives of those who have gone before me, who have encountered trial and temptation, flame and sword, and who counted not their lives dear to themselves so they could just win one more. So my question for us this morning, for myself too, is do we value salvation? Do we recognize the worth of our souls to Christ? Or is our focus on building up our lives here on earth? Is there seen a priority in our time, our energy, our money, our talents, on sharing the gospel with people. If we don't see a great, and I would even say an intense desire to win souls for the kingdom, perhaps we should be asking ourselves if we genuinely value salvation. I've had to ask myself that. And over these years, I still have so much, such a road ahead of me, but God has helped even someone like me, a selfish person, to have a desire for soul winning, a desire to reach out. And I know that if he can use me, if he can put that desire in me that is not natural, he can put it in each and every one of us. Are, we, are there fears that we're allowing in our lives to keep us from really reaching out to a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, a friend with a message of salvation. Maybe it costs too much to ensure that our family and our friends and those around us really are ready for Jesus to come. Does it cost too much? Or are we willing to step out in faith because salvation is worth it? When that day comes, 
I think about when Jesus comes in the, sky, in the clouds. I believe that the Bible is true and it says that Jesus is coming soon. And in that moment when we see Jesus cracking the sky and we hear the trumpet sound, I don't want to have the regret as I look back on my life and I think, oh, if only I had just spent a little bit more time reaching out to those around me. When I see people so happy to see Jesus and then yet I see other people fleeing away, I don't want to have the regret that I wish I wouldn't have been so focused on this other thing in my life that really doesn't even matter anymore now. Now that Jesus is here and people don't know him. I want to be able to look Jesus in the face and say, I've done all that I can, humanly possible, to win souls for you. And I know that God can give each one and every one of us that desire. Perhaps this morning you recognize that you have not truly valued salvation or the worth that Jesus place, places on your life. Maybe there are fears and distractions that are hindering your relationship with Jesus. We live in a world of distractions. We're blessed to live in a first world country, but it's also the greatest challenge. There's so much that vies for our attention. It's easy to be distracted by things that are even good, but maybe not of eternal worth. What are those distractions and those fears that are keeping you from really winning souls? Maybe you have a desire to share your faith boldly, as the reformers did, but you feel ill-equipped. This morning, I want to invite you to respond to God today. I invite those that have a bulletin to take out the connection cards that are inside there that you'll see. And on the back, it says, my response. The first one says, I wish to recommit my life to Jesus and to winning souls for his kingdom. Perhaps you realize today that you matter so much to God and people out there matter so much to him and that you just want to recommit your life to Christ today anew. I want you to check that box. The second one says, please pray that God will help me put aside the fears and distractions that hinder my relationship with him and that keep me from sharing my faith with boldness. Check that box if that is your prayer and I know God will give you the power to put aside those distractions and those fears and to really show you. Sometimes it's a matter of coming to God in the morning during our devotions or our personal time with God and just saying, Lord, I'm here, show me what are the things in my life that are really distracting me from the ultimate purpose you've given to me in being a light to the world. The third one says, I want to be equipped. This one's a little bit more specific. I want to be equipped to tell the world about Christ I'm interested in learning how to give one-on-one -on -one or small group Bible studies and other methods of soul winning. There's so many ways to reach out. It doesn't have to just be a Bible study. It doesn't have to just be passing out literature or going door-to-door, -door, whatever it is. There are so many ways, and God wants to use you. If this is your desire, you sense a desire that God is putting in your heart to know how to have the tool, tools to win souls. I want you to check that box. As I look back, at my experience and the burden that God has given to me, I know that it's not just because I'm Renella or there's anything special. 
God has had to work on my heart and continues to have to root out the selfishness and the ways that I'm trying to focus on my life here on earth. But today it's a call. It's a call to look above and beyond this world. It's a call to see that Jesus is coming soon and that he's calling every single one of us to be an active part in winning souls to his kingdom. And I believe that as we commit our hearts to him, as we allow him to work in us, that he will give us that desire. So I invite you to make this the prayer of your heart as we sing our song, that you would commit your heart to him in service. Let's sing, take the world, but give me Jesus, page 329.